So a new author is Sue Reed, and she's recently published her first novel, which is called The Rewilding of Molly McFlynn. And I'm very pleased to say that Sue joins me now, live from her home in the northeast of England. Sue, just tell us a bit about this book as it's your first novel. <laughs> Hello, Oliver. Thank you for having me. Yes, sure. The, the Rewilding of Molly McFlynn, my debut novel. At its heart is that it's okay to be different and that we do need to return to a love of our planet and a love of nature. Molly McFlynn is 15 and she's been sent to live with her bohemian grandparents in the wilds of Northumberland. Mm -hmm. Um, initially, she thinks just for a few days, but then uh, lockdown, the first lockdowns announced mm -hmm. in the pandemic, and she's stuck with her grandparents who forage for food, grow their own mm -hmm. veg, and she feels the food's inedible. Um, she's furious. And on one of her stomps out down the lane with the dog, she meets a girl in the woods who's homeless. And this girl is homeless and on the run from the 1649 Newcastle witch trials where her mother, Anne Watson, has been banged up in jail. So the book's about reinvention. It's about true friendship and breaking free of consumerism and the world's expectations of us. So did you want to write about the lockdown period? Is, is that a way perhaps you've ha found to, to make sense of that time? Yes, I was. I started my MA in creative writing at Newcastle University in September 2019. So we had a term of teaching and then everything went dead. Um, lockdown was announced. We were back at home. Um, I was missing my own family, my granddaughter, particularly desperately. And I wanted to get the feelings of how we all felt at the time. The unknowns, the not knowing what to do with this, both on a medical front and, and a social front, yes. And I felt that writing about that would bring the detail into it that maybe later on we'd forget. It's a beautiful story. I mean, I've read some excerpts from it and it, it it's focused in on a teenage audience. So why write for teenagers? It has focused in on a teenage audience. I was doing the module writing for children and young adults whilst at uni, and that was where the story started. I've got a lot of memories myself of being with my own nan and granddad. Um, I'm a huge gardener, but often when I'm in the greenhouse, I feel nan's touch in there with me. The smell of a ripe tomato um, brings my nan back. Um, and I, I wanted to get that. However, I would say that what has happened is it's reached a massive crossover audience. I've got a lot of older readers who are really identifying with the nan and granddad in the story and their sustainable lifestyle. Sounds like it's got some of those kind of classic qualities that we expect from classic children's literature, where a child goes to stay with extended family and then you know, gets involved in a fantastical adventure. Is that fair, do you think? Yes, exactly. Yes, it. They, they do say there are only seven stories in the world, don't they? And this is the classic trope of um, child gets sent to live somewhere she's not used to with grandparents and then magic happens. Yes, yes, it is. It is that classic story. Um, I wanted to bring to light also the plight of women persecuted for being outsiders um, Molly herself feels she's an outsider within her community and certainly the women persecuted during the burning times 
were thought of as outsiders. So I wanted to bring this into the story too. Do you feel that perhaps young people today are disconnected from the natural world, from nature? I think there's a growing movement um, of young people that are very turned on to nature and the, the climate crisis and what we need to do. I think um, with Greta Thunberg, I, I look at Molly as the Greta Thunberg of the Northeast. Um, but yes, I do. I think, um, and this is where Molly starts in her story, this um, being sucked into this mass consumerism of disposable fashion, of having to buy the next thing, you know. Um, so yes, I do think a lot of young people are disconnected, but on balance, I think there's a growing movement of young people that are waking up to what our planet needs to survive. In the book, you use the kind of the medium of gardening extensively. And there's a lovely little chapter that you highlighted to me about how Molly goes into her grandfather's potting shed and mm -hmm. cobwebs. There's all sorts of different things, <laughs> a rat scurrying around and things. It's, um, I mean, it, you know, it, is that your potting shed, I think, is what I'm asking you. <laughs> Very much so. Yes, it is. There, there, there's nods to my own granddad in it and um, things. But yes, that is our potting shed. It's a way of life um, that we have. I retired from teaching um, in 2011 and I started blogging um, about the Bridge Cottage Way. We've grown our own food. I've grown my own food ever since I was knee-high to a grasshopper with my nan in their big um, greenhouse. And yeah, our potting shed is one of my favourite places to be as, as, you know, we do grow our own food here. It's really interesting that you've grown your own food for many, many years because I think um, I read in your biography that you um, started growing it in Toxteth in Liverpool. Is that right? Yeah, we, we lived in Toxteth in Liverpool. It wasn't until we moved to Teesside, Stockton on Tees, that we had our first allotment. Um, that would be in 1985 um, that Tim and I had an allotment, had a wonderful allotment, inherited it from an old lady um, and she handed it on. And we were there for two years. Um, we went there one morning and found that some vandals had Stanley knifed the whole lot to the ground, slashed every crop that we had. Um, I remember my husband kneeling on the ground and crying. Um, we decided there and then that we were moving. And we moved to Upper Weirdale, um, a wild and windy place on a hill where everything, the gooseberries would get blown off the bush before they were ripe. But we put up a polytunnel there and even though we were very high and it often snowed we managed to grow corn and all sorts of wonderful crops in that polytunnel we're now a bit lower down um, near Baden Mill on a river level where the soil is wonderful and we've got a huge garden and an orchard and yeah it continues and it continues down the generations my grandchildren are two and five and they absolutely love coming to nanny and granddad's garden and they know how vegetables grow. They're, they're learning about seasonal eating. And that's something I'm absolutely passionate about. Yes, because I think you had a conversation with a colleague, a work colleague at some point, who asked you for a courgette flower. Can you tell us a bit about what that told you about people's understanding of seasonal eating? 
Yes, and I'm glad you've asked this question. Yes, so it was just before I retired from teaching, I taught students with severe learning disabilities in Hexham and a colleague came up and said, could you get, she had tortoises, could you get me a courgette flower for your tortoise? And I said, well, no, Mandy, absolutely not, it's November. She said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, courgettes don't grow in November. And she said, well, how do I know? I said, well, do you not know when fruit and veg goes? Well, no, she says you get courgettes in Tesco's all year round. And I mean, indeed, I, I was in my local co-op just this weekend and they had courgettes on the shelves. Mine have frosted and wilted long ago. And it occurred to me that I knew instinctively what was in season because I've been brought up with it, with my dad had an allotment, my nan and granddad, we grow veg, but for the vast majority of people, they don't know what's in season when. And when our food is shipped from all around the world, grown under plastic, um, brought to us, shrink wrapped, how do people understand about what's in season? And that's how the Bridge Cottage Way, the blog that I started about growing food seasonal eating was birthed because I just wanted to sort of let people know that food needs, if we can and we can afford it, it's so better to eat local food that's grown in season. And then I think you get you get those gluts, don't you? But then you get those treats. I don't eat tomatoes unless they've come from my greenhouse and I've grown them or unless it's summer and they taste so different than a tomato bought in February that, that's come from Almeria. Absolutely, yeah. I remember one year particularly when my dad grew a glut of parsnips and uh, they got they got frozen and then they were paraded out as potatoes as all sorts of different things to try and encourage me yes. as a, a child to eat them with everything. Absolutely. I've got a great recipe for parsnip dal. That's a good one if you've got a glut of parsnips. It's on the Riverford Food um, website. Lovely. So if people want to get hold of your book, just tell us how how they can do that because they can come to your website can't they Sue? Absolutely yes if you're in the UK um, you can get my book you can go into your local bookshop and order it um, on my website if you're in the UK I can send you out a signed copy that's www.sueredwrites.co.uk my publishers are the book guild it can be got there you can get it on any of the online stores and I've just made arrangements this week for global distribution. So give me a couple of weeks and you'll soon be able to order it internationally um, from your local bookshop. But it's in all the usual places, my website or pop and ask your local bookshop. That's incredible, Sue. Thank you very much. And just before we finish up, I mean, you're very near Sycamore Gap in Northumberland on Hadrian's Wall. Mm. I mean... You must have been devastated when you learnt of the news of the, the tree being cut down there. Yes, absolutely. I was in Hexham the day it happened. We couldn't believe it. The photos went out on social media. At first, people thought they were photoshopped. Um, I was in a cafe in Hexham and people, someone told the waitress there, she went and locked herself in the toilet and wept. A man was crying sitting at the table, there was a massive sense of collective grief. It was as if the Tyne Bridge had been blown up. Um, this tree is our symbol of Northumberland. We're a wild county, we love nature here, and it was brutal. I actually went there yesterday, it's been a fabulous weekend here, and I walked to the tree, took photos, 
There were so many people there gathering. Um, I'm writing a sequel to the rewilding of Molly McFlynn that has trees at its heart. It's about grief and death and hope. And when the tree went down, I thought this has to be written about. So I will be writing about Sycamore Gap in the sequel to The Rewilding of Molly McFlynn. It's brilliant. We look forward to it. I mean, yes, I absolutely share all of your sentiment there. I mean, it's it, it was such a symbol, wasn't it, for perhaps our, as a people's relationship with the environment and, and perhaps things that are going wrong with that, I think. Yes. It? Yes, absolutely. I, I don't know why it was done. We don't know. You can imagine the gossips rife around here. The police have actually had to sit outside one man's farm for fear of vigilante retaliation. Um, yeah, it's been horrible. We, it, I don't know if we'll ever find out who's done it. I think the hope we can take from this, they, they've put a, a fence around the stump and they ask people not to climb on it to take photos. And there is hope that the stump might coppice, um, that shoots might appear from it and regrow, and that this is a living stump. It's a living thing still now. And I think we must take hope from that. And I think we must take that whatever positivity we can, that it's brought a community together and it's brought the conversations about our natural world, world high into focus. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I mean, it was a single tree on its own in a in a landscape that would have once been very wooded. So that potentially is quite an interesting plot element for you, isn't it? A sort of mystical, yes. mythic, historic forest gone, coming back. You know, you can probably do something with that, can't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Although I'm going to actually, my, all my books have a time flip in them. So in this first one, she's time flipped to the 17th century. In this one, Molly's going to time flip herself back in time rather than someone coming forward. And I'm going to flip her back to the first century AD when Julius Caesar was announcing that he wanted this wall built. The Romans were just starting to come in. Um, we've got a Druidic grove. We've got a sacred place. We've got an Iron Age settlement very, very near to here um, and that I go up to on Solstice morning to see the sun come up. I'm going to take it back to that time. But interestingly, at that time, doing my research, it was being it was cleared already. It wasn't a forested place even then. So if you wanted to talk about the forest, yes, it was cleared for cattle, great for cattle and sheep, even back in the Iron Age. So you've got to go even further back if you want to for if it ever was a densely forested area at Sycamore Gap. But certainly, yes, our uplands here are grazed to the ground and the biodiversity really needs to be brought back again to these uplands. Thanks very much. That's Sue Reed, who's a new author. And you can go on suereadwrites.co.uk and order the book, The Rewilding of Molly McFlynn. And it's available right now.